listen, uh, I want to take just a moment, uh, a little family moment, and update you on something, and, and then uh, share another kind of something fun that's coming up uh, as we head into the Christmas season. But uh, I want to just give you a little bit of an update on Erin Baker. Now, some of you will know Erin, and, uh, and she's been a part, a huge part of our church for many, many years. She's been on staff with us for three years, and, uh, and you know she's had a tremendous impact. She was part of our speaking team. Uh, she oversaw women's ministry, and, and we have a women's ministry that kills it here, and uh, and Erin played such a huge part in all of that, and uh, she was part of our pastoral team, part of the online campus, but in January, Erin moved to uh, uh, Klamath Falls, about five hours away, and uh, and really kind of moved there, family moved there, and obviously, and young kids, and all of that kind of stuff, and she just felt like in this season that it would be appropriate for her just to kind of really focus in on family, and so she has uh, kind of stepped off of staff, obviously being five hours away, she could our online campus pastor, and I kept saying, Aaron, how can I get you back up to Portland, uh, back up to Happy Valley, right? Because if you know Aaron, she's just a live wire. She's full of life, and if you've been around her, she's just a real encourager. And uh, so she has made that kind of decision to, to do that, and so I just wanted to update you on kind of where she's at and uh, that journey, and some of you know her real well, and uh, you have like her phone number, and some of you have her email address, and some of you are friends with her on Facebook, and some of you have carrier pigeons that like have those little tiny notes that you could put in. You could like contact her and just let her know how much you love her and how much you, she means to all of us and how much she means to you. That would be awesome. So we, uh, we got to celebrate her as a staff this week. We zoomed in. So she was like on this big screen and we had sent her a whole bunch of gifts. So it was like Christmas time. So she had to like open a gift and then we told, you know, we had a few people share some things that we just honored her and loved her. And then she had to open up another gift, you know. So we just had a fun time celebrating her and loving on her. So Keep her in your prayers, and uh, just reach out and just tell her how much you love her. I just wanted you to update on that. Um, does anybody else, there's something else that happened this week, super important. Do you, you know what happened this week? You're all looking at me like, no, I, I don't know. Starbucks came out with the red cups. <laughs> and you know what that means, don't you? It's the official start of Christmas. I mean, somebody screamed Santa, right? <laughs> Yeah, it, it also means, now for some of you, it means that you have to shift over from pumpkin spice lattes over to peppermint mochas, okay? All right, Emily, over to pumpkins, or, you know, over to pumpkins or peppermint mochas, right? And so, but um, we love traditions, don't you? And, and the Starbucks red cup is kind of a tradition that weirdly kind of feels like it kicks off the Christmas season, you know? I feel all of a sudden very festive, you know? And uh, we haven't started the Christmas carols yet. I know that uh, Jeff, Jeff's, Jeff's over here. Jeff Boxel is one of our pastors, him and Aaron. And, and Jeff's already started decorating for Christmas at his house. That's, you're crazy. That's nuts. But he, I was with him last night, and he said if anybody needed help decorating their house for Christmas, he'd be happy to come over. He's that, he's that into Christmas, all right? So just see Jeff afterwards. If you don't get him, I'll give you a cell phone number. It'll all be great. <laughs> so anyway, um, but Christmas traditions. Man, we love Christmas traditions, and we have a Christmas tradition, I think, that is one of the most amazing traditions as a church family. And, uh, and honestly, it's one of the highlights of the year, and it's called Adopt-A-Family. And every year what we do 
is we partner with Title I schools around our campuses. We work with those schools to identify families that could use a big dose of hope at Christmas time. And how many of you know that not everybody has maybe the resources or the ability to celebrate Christmas? And, uh, and we just feel like, man, this is a way for us to live out God's story the way Jesus would have done it. And so we want to just partner with those schools. So the way it simply works is that you can go out after the service, and I think we have it on the website. You can scan the QR code that's on the screen, and, and you can sign up to adopt a family. And uh, we'll get a family. You, you'll be able to even connect with that family. You can go shopping for that family. That's what we ask you to do. Go wrap all those gifts and then bring them back on December 5th. And on December 11th, we're going to host an event here on Saturday morning that uh, they're going to come to, and we're going to bless them and love on them and share Christmas and share Jesus, right? We get to share the love of Jesus with those families. How many think that's a great Christmas tradition? Come on. Like, this is okay, right? The Red Cup's okay, but adopt a family, that's where it's really at. And so I just want to encourage you to be a part of that and uh, go sign up afterwards. It'll be a fun thing. We're also going to be hosting a Christmas tree lighting uh, kind of fun, like little European festival type thing here on Sunday evening, December 12th. So you'll get more information about that. We're going to celebrate Christmas this year, right? And uh, it's worth celebrating because we're remembering Jesus who came to be a part. So, so we have been in this little series uh, that we've been calling A Framework for Life, where we've been kind of exploring what does it mean to live out the story of God? Like here you and I are, a community of just regular old people. I didn't mean old in age, you know, I didn't mean it that way because you're all young and amazing, right? Uh, you're only as long as you feel, right? But how do we live out the story of God the way Jesus showed us in the world in which we live. And so if you remember six weeks ago, I know that's a long time ago, but six weeks ago, we started on this little kind of series of talks and we started actually in the book of Daniel. And, and we use Daniel as this example of someone who was a follower of God, who had devoted their life to God. He was only maybe 15 years old, but he had been in the temple. He'd been raised in a family that was God-honoring, God-fearing, that was, was seeking to serve God in the world in which they live. And the Babylonians came in, and they, they kind of ransacked Jerusalem. They took it over, and then they took some of these young men and women, and they moved them back to Babylon, and they moved them into a culture that was so the opposite of what they had kind of experienced growing up and the story that they were living out. And we started by asking this question, man, how did they live out God's story in this culture that was so much different than the culture that they grew up in? And we recognize that, well, actually, there's a God story and that you and I should understand that God story and understand it in the context of what we kind of call the secular story or what the Bible says is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And so what, what, what we've discovered was over the last four weeks, and I, I have a little slide that we won't go through, but you know, it's a little cheat sheet. If you want to take a picture of it, you can. If you want to remind yourself of the story of God that we've been unpacking over the last four weeks. And the first chapter was creation. And what we discovered in creation is that God is good and all that we need to thrive in life is found in him. That God actually created us for his glory and for the good of the world in which he placed us. And so we were to draw our meaning and our significance and our life from him. But then we were to partner with him to take this little garden called Eden and we were to multiply it and be fruitful with it all over the world. 
And the goal behind that was that we as God's people would, the original design and plan was that we as God's people would be those that would reflect his glory all over the world. And there's a little passage of scripture later on in the Old Testament that says that the glory of the Lord would fill the earth. And that was God's design. That's what God invited us into. It's why he created us. Well, we know in chapter two of the story that the fall took place. And in the fall, what happened was humankind rebels against God's glory. We say, no, 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 we want that glory for ourselves. And the way it started was um, the serpent comes and assassinates God's character. In other words, can you really trust God? I think God's hiding something from you. God's holding something back. God's not really that good. You're going to have to provide for yourself. And of course, that's the story that we hear over and over and over again. Is God really good? Well, I, I don't think God's that good. I don't know how God, if he's that good, would allow these things to happen. But we needed to understand that actually it was us, our sin, that allowed all of that evil to enter into the world. And it wasn't just that it entered into our hearts and I'm sinful and separated from God. It's infected all of creation Every institution, every relationship, every financial structure has been infected by sin, and it's corrupted. And so how do we solve this? What, how do we get out of this? What's God's plan in all of this? And this is what I love about chapter 3, because God is so good that he wouldn't allow humankind to be destroyed. He wouldn't allow humankind, because that's what sin deserves, is death and decay and destruction. That's what we see going on. But God, in his goodness, in his deep care and love for us, comes to not just rescue us, he comes to create an opportunity for us to avoid hell, to not have to go there, to not have to live out that story, but to be invited back to the garden, invited back to relationship with God, invited back into the life-giving, joyful relationship where everything that we could ever need or want is found in our relationship with him. But it doesn't finish there. As we discovered last week, God is in the process of restoring us, of sanctifying us, of perfecting us, of preparing us for an eternity that's with the absence of sin that everything will be as it was meant to be. I think that's a pretty awesome story to live out. And I want to give my life for that. Now I realize it's going to be imperfect and I bump into brokenness and all that kind of stuff. But the question that I want to ask us today is how do we, like you and I, in 2021, right? 2021, that's, that's the year, right? Forgot my years there for a minute, you know? I thought I was back in 1970. Um, kidding. But, but in 2021, how is it that we put the story of God into practice? And that's what I really want to answer today. How do we put God's story into practice? How do we be the kind of community, a community of just regular people living out God's extraordinary story the way Jesus would show us? How do we practically live that out? What does that look like for us? And so what I want to do today as we close out the series is actually go back to the book of Daniel. And there's a set of characters in that story. So there was Daniel that we hear about in that book. But there were three other young men that we learn about from that book. And it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Pretty fun names. Anybody name their kids Shadrach, Meshach? No. Some of you grew up on VeggieTales. And so you remember Rack, Shack, and Benny. Right? Come on, Rack, Shack, and Benny, right? And the, the chocolate bunny and all that stuff, right? Remember that episode? Uh, I watched it this week just as a, just a little bit of nostalgia. 
But, but this idea that Rakshak and Benny, right, how did they live out? How did they practice the story of God in a culture that was so antagonistic or diametrically opposed to the story that they believed in and that they were living out? And oftentimes, you know, if you watch the Veggie Tales one, or maybe you heard about it in Sunday school, oftentimes you hear we've got to avoid peer pressure, obey God at all costs. And that is true. That is a moral or that is a principle that we could draw out from the story. But if we leave it just there, we're going to miss out on some of the depth, some of the complex issues that were going on in the midst of this story. And we could miss the opportunity to learn how we could put some of these things into practice. And we need to recognize and remember, and you probably do maybe from the first week when we talked about this, that you had two cultures or two kingdoms, two value systems that were at war with one another. And the Bible tells us this story over and over and over again because it says that there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self or the kingdom of this world. Uh, Paul says it this way in Galatians that there's, there's the flesh and there's the spirit. And there's enmity or there's a war. They're at odds with one another. And what we've unpacked in this series is that that's not just something that's an internal conflict that you and I go through. That's actually a cultural conflict, right? That it, it bubbles up into all of creation. And the question is, how do we practice if we really believe the story of God? If we really believe that that's what we're called to as the children of God to live out, how do we practice that in the world in which we live? Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. And Daniel chapter 3 is a fascinating passage of Scripture. You probably, as you turn over, you'll see kind of a headline, you know, the fiery furnace. And, and you'll remember maybe some Sunday school story about how, you know, Rakshak and Benny, you know, they refused to bow down their knee in worship. And so they got put into the fiery furnace, right? And, and so you remember that story. But but what I want us to recognize first and foremost is let's just give a little bit of context because what was happening in Daniel chapter 2 was that Nebuchadnezzar, he was the ruler, the king, the authority kind of in that, in that era. He had, um, he had a dream. And the dream was about this statue. And this statue was made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and then it had feet of clay. And Nebuchadnezzar interpreted this dream to mean that Babylon, this kingdom that he had built, was something that was to be set up and all of the people of the world were to come and to worship the value system of Babylon. The power, the authority, and the glory of the kingdom of Babylon. And this is what they were called to do. And so he has this dream, and, uh, and, he, and, it, and for, once again, for him, the gold represented Nebuchadnezzar. It was, man, he was the top of the pile. And so he was going to set up this statue. Now, it's interesting, when you get to the end of chapter 2, in verse 44, it, it says this. It says that God makes it really clear. He says, God is the one who sets up the kings and rulers, and he will set up his kingdom, God's kingdom, above all the kingdoms of the earth. So what's happening here is Daniel is giving us a little bit of background that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and, and it's this statue that's got to be built and everybody's got to bow down and worship this value system or this culture that's being created. And God at the end of the chapter says, look, I'm the one that sets up kings. I'm the one that disposes kings and my kingdom will rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. 
Now, between chapter 2, when this dream happens, and chapter 3, when we start to read about the statue and what was going to take place with these uh, three young men, is 19 years of time goes by. Now, I don't know if 19 years, you know, he had the dream, and the next morning he wakes up, and he gathers all of his architects and all of his builders, and he says, look, I had a dream, and I want to build this statue, and so I don't know if they started building it, and they've been building it for 19 years, but what we do recognize is that this statue is supposed to represent Babylon, and, and, and it's important for us to understand that Nebuchadnezzar, he's built, I mean, he's made Babylon great. He's expanded its territory. He's conquered surrounding nations, and, and uh, he's made Babylon. It's the world's superpower. And, and Babylon, as a culture, was infatuated with violence, with power. It ruled with fear. Like, if you heard that the Babylonian army was on its way, you were hunkering down, you were kind of hiding, you were running, you were going to the mountains, because no one's going to defeat the power of Babylon. Babylon was a great kingdom. And this statue, historians tell us, was actually built, it was about 90 feet tall, Now, what's crazy about it, and this is what makes it an engineering marvel, is that this statue was 90 feet tall. I don't know if that's 90 feet, or I'm not good with that stuff, but but it's 90 feet tall, but it's only nine feet wide. And it's an engineering marvel that this statue that he'd seen in a dream could be built during that time, to go that high with such a narrow kind of diameter. But what this image or this statue represented or symbolized, um, it was supposed to embody everything that Babylon stood for, a human kingdom celebrating human power and the cultural ideals. In other words, humanity, the secular story, the kingdom of this world is who's in charge. And this is what it says in Daniel chapter 3. Let's read this together. It says, Daniel chapter 3, verse 3. It says, Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image of Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. That, um, actually, let me stop right there. Do you notice twice already in two verses, Nebuchadnezzar set this thing up. Nebuchadnezzar set this thing up. Now remember, in chapter 2, verse 44, who is it that sets up the kingdoms of this earth? God. God's in charge. But Daniel's wanting us to understand something that Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in charge. And so Nebuchadnezzar set this up. And when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe, every, thi- every kind of music, you are to fall down and you're to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. There's the third time in three verses. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And and so, once again, what Daniel's trying to do is he's trying to help the readers understand the backdrop to what's about to happen. There's a cultural system. There's a secular story. There's a human kingdom that's being set up as if it's in charge. In fact, if I could say it this way, what Nebuchadnezzar wanted everybody to know is that Babylon is God. Babylon's the one that decides what is good and evil. Babylon's the one that decides what is right and what is wrong. Babylon is the one that defines what success looks like and what failure looks like, right? And so what this image or this statue or this idol was supposed to represent is that that Babylon, the kingdom of this world, is what is in charge. Well, how do these three young men live out God's story in the midst of that kind of culture? 
in that kind of pressure. That if you don't bow down and worship, that you're gonna be put in the fiery furnace. And most of us in the room know the story, but I wanna draw out just a few things that maybe you've not seen before that I think really kind of give us a practical guide for how you and I as followers of Jesus live out in this world, the story of God. And so remember, uh, and the first thing that I want us to point out in this story is simply this, is that you and I, like Rakshak and Benny, we've got to watch what we worship. We have to watch what we worship. Now remember, Nebuchadnezzar, he's demanding that everyone bows down and that they worship this image, which symbolized the glorification of the human story, right? That humanity, that mankind, that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were the ones that were in charge. And so we want you all to bow down to that story, to that value system, because that's what's in charge. Now, we recognize, right, that that is in direct opposition to what God said in Exodus chapter 20. Remember, he says, look, you'll have no other gods but me. In other words, I'm the one that decides what is good and evil. It's why at the outset in chapter one of this story during creation, God said it is good. You know why that thing was good? You know why the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, you know why the mountains and the sky and the water was all good? Because God said it was good. God is the one who defines what is good and what is evil. Not man, not the kingdom of this world, not any political system, not any secular story. None of that gets to define what is good and evil. God defines what is good and evil. And he goes on in verse 5, actually, of Exodus chapter 20, and he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. In other words, don't make any idol. Don't give anything. Anything or anyone, the position, the place of highest honor and highest priority in your own life, but God. God is the one that deserves the place of highest honor. He's the one that deserves that. Now, of course, I get it. You and I, we're way more sophisticated than um, the Babylonians are, you know, during that time, right? Like, we would never bow down to an idol, Right? I mean, when we think of idols, what do we think of, right? We think of like, you know, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, right? Or some of you think of Survivor and the immunity idol. And if I could just get, I know what I would do. I know what I would do if I got the immunity idol. That's what we think about, right? And, and once again, you know, we don't really think about idols in the context of kind of statues and things that we worship and bow down to. But idolatry is valuing something more than we value God. And that changes the game, doesn't it? Because it is possible for us to value something more than we value God. And the issue now becomes an issue of fidelity, doesn't it? It becomes an issue of allegiance. Who am I most allegiant to? Who takes the place of highest honor, of highest priority in my life? Who do I follow? Or what do I allow to go on in my heart? And so what's, what's, what we can recognize is that because idolatry is valuing something more than we value God, it's possible for us to even take good things and make them ultimate things. And so there's not probably one of us in this room, I don't think, that would, if there was a golden calf, that we would probably bow down and worship the golden calf. But there are things that go on in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives that we could give a higher priority to than God. Like, like our identity, like success, like comfort, like what do people think about me? Fear of man. And there are all kinds of things that we can allow to take a higher place in our hearts and lives 
than God does. And so we have to be careful to watch what we worship. John Calvin, he says it this way. He says, man, he says that, that the human heart is an idol-making factory. In other words, we are always producing stuff that we think will solve the problem or we think will bring us happiness or we think will uh, deeply satisfy us, right? And, and that's a struggle, and it's a struggle that's real. But what Jesus comes to do is he comes to help us recognize that the only thing, the only one that would truly, truly satisfy is God himself. Isn't that what we learned in chapter one of the story? That God is the one in whom we find life. In fact, Jesus, when he showed up, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, the early church, they said, in Jesus, it's in God that we have our life and our being, everything that we could ever need or want, we find in him. And so because that's the case, we seek first the kingdom of God. All the other stuff, it's not that it's bad. Some of it is. Some of it we need to avoid like the plague, right? But, but there's good things that find their right and healthy order under the headship and the love and the authority of Jesus Christ. And so we've got to, pe- we've got to be a people that are careful and watch what we worship. Now, why is that? Why is it that we shouldn't make idols or graven images? You, you see that in the Old Testament. And the reason why is because you're an image bearer. You remember that you were created in the image of God. And God says, I don't want you making images or idols or statues or or elevating other things in your life. I want you to be my image bearer. And as you make Jesus the priority in your life, as you give him the place of highest honor, what you begin to do is you begin to reflect his glory back to him, but also to the world around us. And so he says, I don't want you to worship other things because you were designed to worship me. I don't want you to create other images because you yourself are an image bearer. In fact, Peter picked up on it this way and he said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, he says, the reason why is that you're a royal, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people of God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness out of this other story and into the marvelous light. And so this is what God has called us to. God has called us to be an image bearer that reflects his glory. So we've got to be careful what we watch. And we've got to go after those things that we would allow to bubble up in our heart that would take our affection, take our attention, take our love off of God. And we've got to put those things down so that we can elevate God and love him first. The second thing that I reckon... The second thing that I recognize that we learn from this story is not only do we need to be careful and watch what we worship, right? And we want to be a church that that never loses our first love, that isn't just busy doing good things and busy doing good stuff, but that we would be known as a church that is loving Jesus primarily, that we wouldn't lose our first love. And this is exactly what we learn from Rakshak and Benny. But the second thing that we learn from them is this, is that we've got to be powerful in our innocence. And that's kind of maybe a strange way of saying it, but, but you know the story is that, you know, these three young men, they refused to worship this statue that represented the secular story or the kingdom of this world and didn't acknowledge God. It was replacing God, and they just refused to worship. They had a conviction that they were going to live out. But here's what's so amazing is how they responded in that situation. 
And oftentimes, we can have the right, uh, we can have the right, we can have truth. We can have, hey, this is what I believe. This is how we ought to live this stuff out, right? Um, but the way in which we respond can actually nullify our testimony. And I love how Rakshak and Benny lived it out. Look in verse 12. It says this. He says that there are certain, and, and so what happens is, you know, Rakshak and Benny, you know, they refuse to worship. They refuse to bow down. And so these officials, they actually, you know, they, they're kind of, I don't know if they're jealous or envious or what it is, but they're seeing an opportunity here. And this is what it says. It says that the certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by the way, right? Um, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, what's really interesting there is that, that these, these other government officials, um, either out of je- uh, jealousy or they see an angle or they're going to kind of lean more into their story and their narrative, they see an opportunity to throw these three young men under the bus. And, and it says, hey, O king, you know, such respect, O king, they pay no attention. Well, that's an exaggeration, to be honest with you. Because here are three young men who for 19 years have lived in Babylon. They have government jobs. They're working for the betterment of the society in which they live. They're trying to make Babylon a better place for the citizens that are there. They're trying to do it. Obviously, they've got a God story that they're trying to live out. We recognize that, man, they understood Babylonian culture. They spoke the language in Babylon. In fact, we'll discover a little bit later that, that when they go out to the festival, right, when they go out to this kind of uh, this big thing that the king is putting on where everybody's supposed to come and worship and bow down, they actually go out to the festival. They don't resist. They're, not hang- they, they're participating in culture, right? They're actually dressed when they go before the king. They're dressed appropriately to appear before the king. They're doing everything right. They have a faith witness and a faithful testimony that they've played out for 19 years. They're just not going to bow down and worship. And, and so it's important for us to recognize that, men, these young men, it's not that they weren't paying any attention. No, they were in. They were participating as much as they could for the betterment of the world in which they lived in. They just were not going to compromise their conviction over God's story. And, and it, it's interesting because Nebuchadnezzar, he's furious, and so he commands them to come and see him, you know? Who are these young guys that are doing this, right? And so they appear uh, before the king, and and he says this, but if, uh, he gives them a second chance to bow down. He says, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And then look at the arrogance of this statement. And who's the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Doesn't that sound like a man who thinks he has all the authority in the world? Doesn't that sound like a man who thinks, I'm in charge, I'm in control? And he's failed to recognize what God said in Daniel chapter 2, 44. I'm the one that sets up the kingdoms of this world. You submit to me. My kingdom shall rule over all the kingdoms of the world. And he goes on and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he's acting as God, right? And there's this power play that's taking place in this scenario. And so what we recognize is that I love how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. They, they honestly must have been some of the nicest people in the world. Have you ever been around nice people? I always walk away kind of going, oh, I should be a better human being. <laughs> oh, man, I'm such a reprobate. You know, why are you so nice? Well, this is exactly who these three young men were. 
Because when you look at their response, you recognize the respect that they had for Nebuchadnezzar, the authority that he had given, that they respected his authority. And look what it says in verse 16, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the Lord, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, will be able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king. Look how many times they're honoring, O king, O king, O Nebuchadnezzar, full of respect, full of politeness. He goes on and he says, that, um, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And, and what I mean, what, what I think is going on here is, um, O king, we respect you and we honor you, but we're not bowing down in worship. We're not going to enter into a theological debate. At the end of the day, God is the one who has the place of highest honor in our lives, and we honor him above all else. And I, I think as followers of Jesus, we are to be polite and peaceful, but full of conviction and trust. There's a little Bible word called meekness. It says that Moses was the meekest man on the planet. There was a gentleness around him. There was a humility, though there was a deep, deep conviction. And, and, and it's so interesting that, that these were young men who had served faithfully, had been in those kind of government positions, had been working to make the culture in Babylon a better place. They were actually putting into practice what Jeremiah had prophesied to this group of exiles. Remember back in Jeremiah 29, it says that I want you to pray for the peace of the city to which I will send you, which means that God actually sent them into exile, but they were not just to pray, they were putting it into practice. They were working to create peace in the culture and world in which they lived in. And so we recognize that this is what God has called us to, that here were three young men who had a lifestyle of faithful witness and I believe that was their lifestyle of being a faithful witness, of loving, of serving, of being gentle, of being kind, that actually gave power to their words when they spoke to testify of God. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar would eventually respond to, that, 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 that he would acknowledge that, and as we'll discover in the next thing that we'll learn from this. But I think what God's calling us to is that God is calling us to be a church that believes in the authority of God's word, that's established on the truth of God's word, that holds to the convictions of God's word, but does so in a way that testifies to the goodness and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. I would love for us to be the kind of people that, that when, they, when people encounter us, that just year after year of adoptive family, year after year of us loving and serving and caring for our community, that when people would encounter abundant life, they may not always agree with us. They may not always say, hey, yeah, we agree with you and your position on this and that and whatever the case might be. But what they could not deny is that we represented Jesus to them. That we represented the love and the kindness and the mercy of God without ever compromising the truth of God's word. And so we want to watch what we worship. We want to be powerful in our innocence. But the third thing that we learn from this, uh, little, these three guys is that we ought to be those who are known for our relationship with Jesus. 
And, and you know the whole story, right? So Shadrach, they, they, they just said, thanks for the second chance, but we're not bowing down. And so he heats the furnace up 10 times hotter, right? He's furious at this point and because he feels like, man, you just disrespected me and you won't uh, acknowledge my power and my authority. And so he throws them into the fiery furnace. And you guys know the story. There's three of them that goes in. Then there's the Hillsong worship band that comes up on the scene and they're singing, there's another in the fire. And this is why I'm not a part of the worship team, right? Because what? There was a fourth person in the fire. Who is this fourth person in the fire? And, and Nebuchadnezzar, he's wiping his eyes and he turns to his advisors and he goes, didn't we just send three into the fire? Why am I seeing four? But it's because God's with them. Even in the midst of their trial, they wouldn't compromise. They wouldn't, um, they wouldn't give up on their conviction. They did so with such grace and such peace and such kindness and God stood with them in the middle of the trial. And it's so awesome to see Nebuchadnezzar's response because in verse 28, look what he says. Nebuchadnezzar, having seen the fourth in the fire, he calls them out of the fire. And it says that they weren't even, there wasn't even the smell of smoke on them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel to deliver his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their God. Whoa. But I want you to see something. What Nebuchadnezzar didn't do, he didn't say, wow, look at Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. He says, no, no, no. He's looking to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and here are three young men who lived out God's story. I believe the way Jesus lived out God's story in a gentle, loving, and lowly way. Serving and loving and being kind. Having a faithful witness. And when that moment of conflict came between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, God showed up on their behalf. And what the world watching didn't respond with, well, look at them. It was, no, look at God. And I hope that we will be the kind of church that will faithfully, year after year, decade after decade, show up as Jesus would show up. That we would love and we would serve and we would be kind and we would be gentle. We would be humble. We would be loving. We would not compromise. We would live with conviction. And that the people around us here in this community and around the world, when they looked at abundant life, what they wouldn't say was, wow, look at abundant life but that they would look at us and say, look at the God of abundant life. Come on, that's the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be the kind of people that love people, that love God, and we recognize that, man, we can't do life for God or for Jesus if we're not doing life with him. But here's what's the most amazing part of the story, is that Jesus comes and he steps into the middle of the mess. Jesus wasn't just with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there in the fiery furnace. Jesus comes and he steps into the middle of humanity's mess. He leaves the splendor of heaven. He takes on a human body. And he lives the life we could never live, will never live. And he walks faithfully with God his Father, never sinning tempted in the same way that you and I are. And he willingly goes to the cross as the only solution 
that allows us to be redeemed and invited back into the garden. And so my question to us as we close out this series, we want to be that kind of people. We want to be a church that's known for Jesus. We want to be a church that, that, man, they don't see us. They don't see our good works. And by the way, those are not bad things because God has prepared good works ahead of time that he wants you and I to participate in, to be involved with. But as we're doing those things, I want them to see Jesus. I want our community to see Jesus. I want the world in which we live to see Jesus because Jesus is the one that was willing to enter the mess so that you and I could be invited back to the garden. And so here's what I want us to do. I'd love us just to close our eyes. Just for a moment, of just personal reflection, just privacy, just you and Jesus right now. And Jesus, you know, the Bible says that he stands at the door and knocks. And many of us in the room this morning, man, we've already responded to that invitation, that, hey, I want to do life with you. I want to step into the middle of your mess and I want to forgive you of your sins and I want to give you my righteousness and I want to give you the power to overcome sin and a new creation. God, the Bible tells us that he makes us new creation. It's called abundant life. This is the invitation of Jesus. And as we sit in this room, there may be some in the room this morning that, man, you've never maybe been invited never responded to that invitation, but Jesus is here right now, and he's inviting you. He stepped into the middle of humanity's mess. He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and Jesus wants to step into your furnace. He wants to step into your mess. He wants to step into your life to forgive, to heal, to give you his righteousness, so that you could be a new creation, do life a whole new way. And so if that's you this morning, and you just feel Jesus inviting you to that, man, would you have the courage, the boldness, just to slip your hand up and say, that's me. I want that. I'm going to respond to that invitation. I want that kind of life. If that's you this morning, would you simply slip your hand up this morning? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. So Jesus, this morning, we're grateful that Lord Jesus, you stepped into the middle of our mess. We're grateful this morning that you don't, you're not distant, you're not pointing the finger, you're not ready to whack us upside the head with a two by four for doing wrong. No, 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 you stepped toward us to forgive us and to bring us back into the garden, back into relationship, back into your family. So Lord, for those this morning that have responded to that invitation, Lord, we recognize that as we confess our sin, you forgive us. But you don't just forgive us. You give us your righteousness. You give us the power, your power, your very spirit abiding in us so that we don't even have to respond to sin the way we've responded in the past. We can overcome. And so Lord, we are thankful this morning for forgiveness.